funny. The guys that I knew who sold their first script didn't necessarily continue working in the business. They were hot for a moment. They would get a couple of writing assignments at a studio, but they hadn't perfected the craft to the point where they could continually deliver every time they were asked to. If you've got something, let it rip. I'm never going to do this again. Everybody grapples with this idea that you're really a fraud. Like, I'm alive. And that's when it clicked with me. I thought, these are not superheroes. These are just men that can do super things. This is Matt Del Negro, and you are listening to the new Stripped Down 10,000 Nos. Today's episode is pulled from one of our 10,000 Nose Insiders Community monthly VIP industry guest Zooms. It's with writer, documentary filmmaker Joe Piscatella. I'm just going to get right into it because the intro is pretty much baked right into our conversation. Enjoy. What we do here is go back, 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 back. The reason I wanted Joe Piscatella here with us today is he masterfully pivoted the strike in 2008 hit when he was pretty hot as a writer he still writes now he and i are currently working on something together he does other stuff on his own but he's become a very well respected award-winning documentary filmmaker in the interim he's here for many reasons one he's just a great guy two he's super talented and smart three he's kind of been very successful in two different disciplines that are related but are not exactly the same. The, the fact that he he didn't just pivot to documentary filmmaking, he pivoted and he won the audience award at Sundance in what year was that? 2017, uh, I think. 2017. Joe, I kind of want to start off with somewhere in the early 2000s or late 90s where you're writing, finding a lot of success there prior to the strike. You went to Georgetown undergrad, played football. I did. I'll, I'll give you the, yeah, I played football at Georgetown. Everybody at Georgetown at the time, you know, it's, it's a great school, but everybody goes into government, law school, med school or some sort of consulting uh and or obviously politics is the big one and i realized very quickly that i did not want to do any of those things i wanted to be a screenwriter much to the dismay of my parents who were like wait we just paid for georgetown uh and you want to do what you want to go wait tables in los angeles so i worked as a speechwriter for a year in dc i was working at a consulting company that was like speed you know writers for hire sort of a thing and i realized after about six months i was essentially writing fiction and if I was going to be writing fiction, I wanted to get paid Hollywood money for it, not junior consultant's money. So on a whim, I applied to the only graduate school deadline I could still make, which was USC's graduate writing program. I had two weeks to get in my application. I got them to accept 60 pages of a novel I had been working on in lieu of the screenplay because I had never written a screenplay before. I begged two professors at Georgetown who I don't think really knew me to write recommendations like that day. And I took the GREs on standby and sent everything in, not expecting to get in and thinking, well, the following year I'll apply to a dozen schools and off I'll go. Lo and behold, I got in. So I picked up, I moved out to Los Angeles, went to USC graduate writing, met my writing partner who became my long-term writing partner, worked a lot of really, uh, well, a lot of assistant gigs. Some really good, some uh, are great Hollywood stories of, you know, horrible people behaving horribly. But anyways, I was, you know, I was making something of myself. I was in the business. 
And my writing partner and I happened to, this shows you how these, how these things sort of work in Hollywood. My writing partner's dad played tennis with the dad of a guy who at the time was running a show called Stark Raving Mad. It was Neil Patrick Harris's first foray into television after Doogie Howser, Tony Shalhoub. It was part of NBC's Thursday night lineup. This is like 1999-ish. Show hadn't aired yet, but we were able to get our writing sample to to the showrunner, this guy who was a big deal in Hollywood, who who you know was so far above my level. And he read it. And again, it, it's one of those things where you know what, what's the the old saying: luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. And this was exactly that. I mean, we had a great writing sample, and this guy read. It. And he said, oh, man, this is great. And he gave us some notes. We quickly turned those notes around and sent it back to him. I don't think he was expecting that. And he was impressed with our writing, but he was more impressed with, hey, we were able to take his notes very quickly, turn them around, and make our, our writing sample even better. And he said, listen, guys, I've got this new show. It's coming out on NBC. It's called Stark Raving Mad. Come in and pitch me some episode ideas. So we read the pilot. I think they had shot the pilot and maybe one or two other episodes. So we watched him. We came in. We pitched a couple of ideas, and they bought one. I mean, incredibly, he was like, hey, that's great. So we got to go write this episode of television. It was a big deal. You know, we got to go onto the sound stage and we got our agent out of this, and the, the thing got produced. So coming out of this, we now had an agent. We now had a manager. You know, we were primed to take on the business, and everybody said, you guys are going to get staffed immediately during the staffing season. You guys will get a sitcom job like in a heartbeat. And that was the first year of a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? All of these sitcom jobs got cut in half. So the next, you know, I kept at my assistant gig the next year, same thing. We pitched another episode idea to another show that we, uh, somebody we had met and again, it got produced and everybody was like, oh my God, you guys have two produced episodes. You're totally going to get staffed this year. And that was the first year of a show called Survivor. So suddenly sitcom jobs got cut in half yet again because everybody now wanted competition shows and game shows because of who wants to be a millionaire. So our manager wisely at the time said, hey, I don't think there's a whole lot of jobs for sitcom writers right now. Maybe you guys should look at feature films. And so we came up with this idea of a James Bond penguin. You know, the penguin's already in the tuxedo. The conceit of the film was, unbeknownst to humanity, penguins are actually the smartest species on the planet and have been saving our asses for generations. We just don't know about it. So we wrote the script, we ended up selling it to DreamWorks Animation, and those penguins became the inspiration for the penguins in the Madagascar movies. And that's a whole different scenario that, that we don't need to go into right now, but the gist just, of it is suddenly- my out. Do you see any money from that or no? It's completely nope. like they and, stole it. And... Animation is not covered by the Writers Guild. There are no residuals. The guys that wrote Shrek, the guys that wrote Kung Fu Panda, they don't see any residuals. It's a writer for hire gig. I'm grateful for the opportunity. And it was, we had a really great experience up there. Um, but you know, long story short, my writing partner and I suddenly found ourselves in the world of family comedy. We didn't set out to be writing animated movies or, or talking dog movies is what we became known for. But suddenly we wrote Underdog for Disney. We did the, the comedy punch-ups on like Kung Fu Panda and Hotel Transylvania and a bunch of other movies that weren't quite as esteemed, but certainly did okay. We were on a really great trajectory. And 2007 hits, Underdog had just come out. And while it wasn't a huge hit, it was a big enough hit. We were getting tons of meetings. 
And we happened to have a meeting with Warren Littlefield, who, if anybody remembers, he ran NBC during the heyday of Seinfeld and Friends. And he had this producing deal, I think with Touchstone. Anyways, his office was on the Disney lot. He passed the underdog poster every day walking into his office. So he called us for a meeting and we pitched him an idea for a one hour dramedy and he loved it. He was just like, we're going to do this. So we ended up setting it up at, I think, got to remember, I think we set it up at Fox. We were in the middle of the first draft and the writer's strike hit in 2007. And so everything gets put on hold. You know, we went and, and did the strike for, I think it was a hundred days and we came out of the strike my career that had been red hot going into the career or going into the strike suddenly was not red hot. It was sort of a reset in the business. You know, suddenly Fox wasn't buying, they weren't going to produce 20 pilots like they normally do. They were only going to pr produce three that year, three dramedies that year. And some of the deals we had set up evaporated because they can do that in a strike. They can cancel deals. And so suddenly it wasn't like we were back at square one, but my writing partner and I were suddenly faced with the reality of, okay, we've got to, we've got to reestablish ourselves. We can't, we can't be on cruise control like we were and, and get work. We really, you know, we went back to what we did best and we were trying to come up with great ideas and it was just a hard time in the business. And at the time, you know, my writing partner and I had been together almost 15 years at this point. We were growing apart. I mean, a, a partnership, a writing partnership is very much, uh, it's a marriage. And we were starting to have different priorities and we split. And that was kind of a big deal. Suddenly we weren't Piscatella and Williams anymore, which everybody knew. I was just Piscatella, which people are like, I don't know who that is. I mean, I know you were part of this team, I don't know who you are as an individual. Right about that time, I had the opportunity to go direct a documentary film about a 19-year-old girl in Chicago that was running the Syrian revolution. It was a very, very different film than a talking dog movie. And they asked me to direct it, which nobody had ever asked me to do before. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was smart enough to surround myself with people who did know what they were doing. And I went off and made this film that I thought was going to be a one-off. I thought I'd spend a year I do this thing and then I go back to writing talking dog movies. And instead it took two years to complete this film. Obviously the Syrian revolution is a very complex topic, but my team was one of the first teams to smuggle out high def footage of the atrocities going on in homes, which became the big war zone in Syria. And the film came out and it did really well. Uh, it did really well on the festival circuit. It, it did well on the sales side. I think it ultimately aired in, I don't know, a hundred different countries. Netflix licensed it. It was suddenly I was kind of known as this guy who worked in the human rights genre. And just as I was about to go back and try to reestablish myself as a talking dog writer again, somebody approached me and said, Hey, I've got access to this kid named Joshua Wong. He started all the, all the turmoil you've seen in Hong Kong over the last decade. He's the kid that lit the fuse on it when he was 13. It was a compelling idea. And I thought, man, you only get to make so many films in your life. I want mine to have some meaning behind them. So I took on this, this job and we made a film called Joshua Teenager versus Superpower. And that film went on to win Sundance and Netflix bought it in a very high uh, profile acquisition out of the festival. And suddenly I was a human rights documentary filmmaker, even though I don't really think of myself as that. I think of myself as a writer first. The last decade, that was my pivot. I mean, I suddenly became a documentary film guy who works, you know, I, I tell stories about teenagers that start revolutions, unlikely heroes who stand up to massive power structures. That's what I am now. 
So crazy. So, well, thanks for sharing it all. And, and there's a lot of things in it that I feel like relate to what we talk about here all the time. One, I, I think it's interesting thinking of something I've always just said in life that I learned in college, people like to put you into a box, the smallest, easiest box to define you. And I realized it when I went from playing lacrosse to doing a play and telling everybody I was going to be an actor. The way I describe it is like, I would do, you know, be at a party. I was the guy that if I was flirting with a girl, it would be like, you know, there's a an ironing board and I would pick it up and pretend it's a surfboard and do some kind of dumb shtick to try to make them laugh. And when I did that, when I was a lacrosse player, they were just like, oh, you're a jackass. When I did that, like only three months later, people would see me do something like that. And they're, oh, you're such an actor. And I remember thinking immediately going, it's so interesting how exact same guy, exact same antics, but now I'm an actor. And with you, you've kind of gone through these these different definitions of yourself from the outside and how they perceive you. But having been writing with you on the, the Bernsey thing and having read some of your other scripts, you are a writer. That is what you are. And yet the business is going to receive you in the way that's easiest to define you. You, you won Sundance. Oh, he's a doc filmmaker. Even more so, like he's a guy that makes docs about teenagers that start revolutions. Like that's just, so, it's kind of funny to me because it's so specific and you just fell into it. Is there a mindset that you have that you feel has served you that you see others that you think might be just as talented as you, or maybe even more talented, but they're not even doing this anymore because they couldn't pivot. Do you have that, those people in your life? Of course. I mean, I, you know, I'll never forget. I, I, there were 25 people I graduated USC with. And again, this was a prestigious graduate writing program. It was people who were really, really talented. And we all spent two years on our, you know, our thesis script. And when the script didn't sell or it didn't get them an agent or they weren't immediately the next big thing in town, people gave up. I'll never forget. I happened to have uh, lunch one time and I, with a big time A-list screenwriter, friend of a friend, took a bunch of us at USC to lunch. And he said, hey man, writing is a craft. It is no different than being a cabinet maker. He said, if you're a cabinet maker, the first one you build, it's probably pretty ugly. Second one's a little nicer. By about your fourth or your fifth one, somebody says, I'm going to put that in my living room. He said, screenwriting's no different. And so he said, the expectation that I'm going to write this first script and suddenly I'm going to make a million dollars. Sure, it happens. I mean, there are all sorts of tales of, of people who write that first script. Uh, you know, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I don't know where Goodwill Hunting was on, on their resume of scripts, but I know it was very early in their career. There are guys that, that hit the lottery, but it's funny, the guys that I knew who sold their first script didn't necessarily continue working in the business. They were hot for a moment. They would get a couple of writing assignments at a studio, but they hadn't perfected the craft to the point where they could continually deliver every time they were asked to. And a lot of times they fell by the wayside because by the second or the third job, people said, oh, they're not that good. They were a one hit wonder. They had that one script that was great, but they can't keep delivering. And so part of it, I think, is just learning your craft. Part of it, I think, is perseverance. Some of it's probably sheer stupidity that I keep doing it because 
this is a business of which it's hard. I mean, anybody who's been in it can tell you it's a hard way to, there are easier ways to make a living. And Matt, you're right. People do love to put you into a box. I mean, I, I, I will never forget being in meetings with my writing partner. We had just written Underdog and we'd be up for a romantic comedy or we'd be up for something that was slightly out of the family comedy genre. And people would say, well, you just write animated movies. How could you possibly pull this off? Or somebody would say to me, well, you're going to go make a documentary. Like, how are you going to do that? You've never done that before. It's storytelling. I mean, at the end of the day, whether it's a documentary or a talking dog movie or a romantic comedy or a thriller, it, you're just telling a story. And anybody who's working on their craft knows how to do it. But you're absolutely right. People have a hard time seeing us outside of, of what we just did. That still goes on. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm up for jobs periodically in the documentary world where it'll be like a true crime story. And people will say to my agent, I know he's good at what he does, but I mean, true crime is really different than a human rights story. I mean, it isn't, it isn't. Yes, they're different genres, but I, you're still telling a story with a, a beginning, middle, and an end. And that's what it's about. That relates so much. Now, we have a mix of a lot of actors, but I'm, I'm just actually looking up what we have today. We've got an actor-writer. We've got a singer-songwriter. We've got a novelist writer and then we've got an actor who's been writing and kind of making some of his own stuff so everybody here is creating in some way shape or form and, I, and i've been encouraging everybody including myself to do that but it also reminds me just as an actor my version of your story is the stuff that i complained about early on there, there always seemed like there were these guys that that just got a pilot every year and back then when you got a pilot you made not just what your rate was per episode, you made double that. And back then it was more, so like people would make, they would do a pilot and they'd get like 90 grand. I not only didn't do that, it seemed like I couldn't crack into that club. And yet I worked a lot and I did little things or I did arcs, I recurred on things and some of them were really good shows, whatever. But after a long period of time, those people would like do a pilot, make a lot of money, not have to work until the next time they got a pilot. And those pilots wouldn't get picked up, most of them. In the meantime, I was working for a lot less, but I was out there and people were getting to know me, both behind the camera and then also audience. And I mean, a while into it, but maybe 10 or 15 years into it, all of a sudden I'm more of a known entity than those people that were like way ahead of me. And also I was working all along. So I was working on the craft, I was working in different environments. So it does just kind of come back to the basics of the craft. If you hone your craft, if you think of it like a cabinet maker, you do have something to offer. You may not hit the lottery, but you are the person that they, you know, I know right now you could put me on a show. There's a certain amount of insurance if you hire me that I'm not gonna be terrible that hopefully I'm going to bring something to the show. And that's just like a hireable skill. That doesn't like change your life, but it helps you survive. What I discovered is whether I'm out pitching a new film, trying to get financing, or I'm pitching on a job that a studio or a streamer or a network wants to make, this documentary, they have the life rights to some great story. And I'm one of the people they're interviewing to see if I might be right for it. Or, you know, back when I was doing more screenwriting, if I was up to do a rewrite job, at the end of the day, you're selling trust. I am trying to convey to, a, to somebody with a checkbook, hey, if you hire me, I'm going to deliver. I'm not going to flake on you. I'm going to do what I said I did, and I'm going to do it at a really high level. 
And once I sort of realized, I used to get frustrated because a lot of times we used to call them bake-offs. A studio would have a rewrite job on a script. It's a great way for screenwriters to, to make a living of, you know, most films, you guys probably already know all this, but mo most movies have many writers on them who are uncredited. You know, like on, I worked on Kung Fu Panda. I was probably one of 50 writers that came through. I was probably writer 17 or 18. I'm not credited on the film. But when you go up for those jobs, they're interviewing 10, 15 different writers to say, hey, who's going to do the pass on this? And sometimes we would come in with really great ideas and we wouldn't get hired. And I'd be so frustrated of like, I know we had the best ideas of anybody that, that was going up for that. Because some of the people I know, we've talked about what we pitched. I know what I had was better. And at the end of the day, it was right, but we're selling trust. They had more credits to their name. They had an agent who had delivered with other clients in the past to the studio. So the studio said, man, we trust those people. So I always look at it as every time I've got a general meeting, every time I meet somebody, every time I pitch something, I think about it less as selling this widget that I'm trying to get paid to go do and more. Hey, how do I sell trust to these people that I can deliver, whether it's on this thing or something else that they're going to hire me for down the line if this one doesn't pan out? And that, that's my thing with auditions. You are auditioning for that role, but you're auditioning for life. The number of times that I've gotten a job through someone that I had been in front of so many times, one, that's what gets them to call you back. So you have more opportunities. And then two, they're going like, they pulled for you for four auditions ago and the producers wouldn't go for it. And this time they pull for you and they get it. And they, and they, you know, that's the other thing I, I think that for us to all think of is sometimes, especially in the beginning, you think it's me versus them and you think they're out to get you. And then you start to realize people are many times pulling for you and you don't realize it because you didn't get the job and you think, Oh, like I used to get mad at casting directors and didn't yet comprehend that they weren't the ones making the decision. The fact that they were bringing me back in meant they were trying to pitch me to their producers, their creators. The film that was just a Tribeca, that casting director from the minute I submitted the, uh, the tape was pulling for me, had emailed my reps and, it, and I didn't get it. I think there was like a month period where they went out to somebody else and it just, that person fell through. And then I wrote a letter and then she kept pulling for me when I finally got it. She said, you know, sometimes you feel like you get the person that was the right one for the job. And this is one of those times. And I saw her at the festival and she was, she was like thanking me and I was thanking her. We're all in it together. And I think Joe's point is really right that you are, you're selling trust. That's a great way to think of it. Trust that you know your craft, trust that you're a reliable person trust that you take your work your standards are high all of it all right folks that's it thank you for joining us uh, i think the biggest takeaway for me from joe was honing your craft so that you're prepared to pivot if life puts an iceberg in your path uh, to that end, if you want to be prepared to pivot, there are tons of offerings from 10,000 Knows. Just go over to 10,000knows.com or follow me on Instagram at Matty Dell. You can DM me. You can email info at 10,000knows.com if you're interested in joining Insiders community or doing anything else with me, studying, private coaching, whatever. All right, we'll see you next week.